Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. And I am so excited to be on the show with you today. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon to everyone here in the United States and around the world. We apologize. We seem to be having some technical difficulties, and we'll be speaking with Blog Talk Radio. This is the second week in a row, so we do apologize for that. And without any further ado, we have an amazing show today. I am really excited to bring on um, my co-host shortly, but we will have Robin Crespo from ING Activewear and also the CEO, founder, and executive director of Code Purple event. This is an amazing gentleman. He is an entrepreneur, humanitarian. He's going to share his ups and downs as an uh, entrepreneur and what it took for him to just not wait for anyone to tell him what to do, but through trial and tribulation, the differences other people have made in his life, he became a humanitarian and finding something that was a solution to malaria that even stopped mosquitoes from biting people in various countries where malaria is a problem and an epidemic. So without further ado, we're not going to give away the show yet. I am going to bring on Mr. Jay Logan. Gail, yeah, how are you? Hi, Gail. How are you I doing am, today? I am doing wonderful, Jay. We definitely have to talk to Blog Talk Radio about these issues that we're having with the radio station uh, here. But let's get beyond that and go right into the show. Are you ready, Mr. Logan, to do that? I am so excited. Let's do it. Yeah. And, you know, Jay, I am so excited about uh, Robin Cresco being on the show today. You know, it is just an amazing, amazing, it's just, you know, watching Robin from where he was and, you know, and he just keeps growing by leaps and bounds and the, the show that he's doing with the documentary, you know, we're going to get to talk with him about that. I'm just so, so excited, you know. So without further I, delay, Jay, I wanted to go into something that really is close to home, you know, around Robin today. And it's about a woman by the name, a legendary designer by the name of Vivian Westwood, okay? Uh, at her 2013 runway show that was in Milan this Saturday, what stuck with audiences was her stunning collection for climate revolution, okay? She is 71 years old in the fashion industry, has an out, you know, a really outspoken voice on environment and sustainable practices, and has been, you know, and she's been really outspoken in the fact that it's slow to adopt change, given where we are with our climate right now, you know. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's really looking at climate re- uh, revolution as a means towards a sound economy, you know. And one of the things she said was inspired, was she inspired her collection by global warming and urban traveling, you know, biking in particular, all right. So she had these chiseled models strutting down the run- runway in streetwear, Taylor trousers and cashmere, you know, sweaters, okay, that were 
actually, you know, sporting some of these things that were made in Kenya. And, you know, and she's doing the trade, an ethical fashion trade. And I'm so happy about this because here it is that we have Robin coming on who has created and invented a fabric that fights the mosquitoes from biting through for malaria and Lyme disease. You know what I mean? So this is amazing to see that there's another person here that, you know, I know was unbeknownst to me that's in the fashion world that's walking the walk and talking the talk. What are your thoughts about that? Let's catch it on. Um, it's great that we have uh, other entrepreneurs and people out there that are trying to do things to help uh, the world and, and help other countries. And it's just great that uh, she's out there doing the same thing. She's walking the walk and talking the talk. You know, it really is, Jay, because if you think about it, you know, we're here dealing with mosquitoes, they're dealing with mosquitoes in other parts of the world, and it's getting worse as a result of climate control. You know what I mean? I mean, the winters look like the summers. The summers look like the winters. It, it's, really, um, it's really getting a little crazy, to be quite frank with you, you know? So, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just blown away that, you know, I happen to say, well, what will we talk about today that's in relationship to what we're speaking about here, you know, with uh, Robin, you know, and it's just amazing to, 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 to see this and see what's going on. It's just unbelievable, you know, and that brings me to our next one. You know, did you hear, now this is a completely different topic. It's kind of funny. I don't know, you know, have you heard, Jay? This is amazingly funny. I, I couldn't believe it. That Google, the CFO of Google is saying that Facebook is doing a really bad job with its products. Now, I couldn't believe this. Okay? Now, you know, this to me is absolutely funny because it says, you know, they're saying that. Now, when asked about Google's motivations for competing with Facebook in the social networking space, he didn't miss words. He said, they're a company that's strong in that space. He said, but they're doing also a really bad job in their products. Now, how did you say this? When Google, you know, has been paid, you know, has been criticized as well. He's criticizing for being, you know, to Facebook for being closed with its data, you know. They should be closed with its data because it involves our data. You know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, it really gets me. And, and, and both of them are behemoth corporations. You know, and he's saying that they don't need Facebook to fall with the company in order for it to succeed in social. He says we're doing something different. But, you know, I think it's an outrageous to say that there's only space for one company in these areas, he says. So, you know, they're very happy with Google+. Plus. I don't think Google+, Plus is all that great, and they are trying to, to me to use somewhat of what Facebook has. You know, every company has to survive. I mean, what are your thoughts about this? Because I just thought it was kind of really funny for him to say that, you know, that it was in that way. What do you think about that, Jay? That's, that's, that's very funny. Uh, Google is very competitive with Facebook. You know, they're, they're actually out here in the Bay Area, so they're at odds all the time. Um, Google has been very competitive with uh, Facebook as well as uh, we'll see the Apple company out here. They... they they're fighting, trying to find a niche, and not just to be a search engine. They, they're always sort of working on new products, such as you know they want to, they want their own telephone. Um, Facebook is growing and is taking a bigger share of the market. So it's probably like Google. This is the only way Google, Google can fight back. The CEO can uh, fight back. Um, 
I think um, I think Facebook is doing a great job, actually. I mean, if it wasn't for Facebook, a lot of people wouldn't um, actually be in communication with each other. I, I'm not I into Google Plus. <laughs> I'm not into Google Plus that much, and they're trying to take a bigger share from Facebook. Um, so now, Jay, you uh, and I would probably have a disagreement with that, and I don't want to. We have Rob in here, so I don't want to keep it long. But I'm going to leave you with one thing. I'm likely a little annoyed that Facebook is charging a dollar to reach certain people in your network when you send a message. I think that's ridiculous because that allows spammers to send spam if they're willing to pay a dollar. You know, they're getting a little much, and they're turning off some of your feeds as well, it, just because you don't talk to that person in two days. So you and I really, I mean, I love. Facebook, it's addictive, and I do love it, and I agree with you. You can talk with people that you normally can't talk with, like friends I have in other countries or friends you have. But they're, you know, they both have their pluses and minuses, I think, and this is definitely a conversation for another time. I love when we have a different opinion because, you know, we, we then can bring something to the table that allows our audiences to hear two sides. But, you know, Jay, guess who we have waiting to come online? You will not believe who we have. Um, let me see. Uh I think his name kind of starts off like a bird or something, but uh, I think it's Robin Crispo. Yes, I think it's Robin Crespo. <laughs> so, so without further ado, we're going to bring on Robin Crespo. Hi, yeah, how are you? Hi, Robin. I believe you remember Jay. How are you doing, Jay? Yes, Jay. Jay. How are you doing, Jay Logan? You doing well? I'm doing I'm doing well, and thanks for being on the show, Robin. It's good to hear from you. You know, we're we're really excited about this year. Um, this is going to be an unbelievable year. I'm really excited to be here today, so I thank Wait, you guys we, for inviting me on the show. You have no idea how excited we are. We're excited that, you know, we're working together with you. Um, our song is getting ready to come out that's going to be supporting your organization. We are just so excited, Robin, about the work you're doing. I can actually contain myself. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, well, you, and, um, you, you know, the uh, the last couple of uh, weeks I've been out on a back injury, so I've been a little bit quiet. And um, so I've gotten a lot of phone calls over the last couple of days on, you know, what are you guys doing? What You know, what's what's the next thing for, for Code Purple? What, what, what are you guys doing? And, um, over the last two weeks, I've really had some time to to unknot the uh, I think the knots that were in my subconscious <laughs> mind. And um, well, Robin, uh, gonna... if, if it's okay, if it's okay with you, we have some really fun questions for you today. And okay. we like to, we have some really fun questions for you today. We'd like to know if we can start getting into that interview with you. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into it. Okay. Well, Robin, we learned some interesting things since our last interview with you. And many of our audience members don't know how you started, okay? So okay. our first question for you today is, we want to go back a little bit and bring everyone to the front. Is that okay with you? That's fine. We're going to go way back, though. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to go too far back. <laughs> well, we want our first question for you is, would you share with us on how you got started in fashion, if you wouldn't mind? Um, the first time that um, I think that, that fashion struck me um, as a thought, as a concept, and when I actually knew that it was something that I wanted to do um, or be a part of, um, I was in first grade. It was the first day of school, um, and I was going to a new school. It was called Roberto Clemente School for Gifted and Talented Kids. And that day I had on a brand-new pair of um, white-on-white um, shell-top Adidas, 
with uh, white satin laces. <laughs> um, I had a pair of skinny, uh, skinny white jeans. Um, they were Levi's, and um, I had a white Latigre shirt on. And I had uh, lines on the side of my head that were uh, shaved in. I had a long tail and a spiked haircut. And as we were driving, as my mother was driving me to the new school, um, you know, we didn't have much growing up, and we grew up in an inner city. And and, um, and actually, the, the back floor of her um, Volkswagen was rotten. You know, so and it was a little wet out that day, and I remember holding my feet up because I didn't want them to get dirty and the splash from the drive. Um, but it was when I stepped outside of that car that I realized that um, what I was wearing was or or was creating a new identity for myself, and I was able to separate myself from my current circumstances. Um, and because it was a new school and it was a the first day of school, I felt like a new person. And it was at that moment that I realized that clothing and fashion and what you're wearing and how you're wearing it um, could mean something. And it, and it, begins, it, it began at that moment um, in first grade. And, um, you know, fast forward, I think I was maybe in third or fourth grade, I submitted for a um, competition to uh, design a new sneaker. And I think the company at the time was Nike. Um, and I lost the competition. And that... It devastated me in one one way because I could not understand why I didn't win. I mean, I made a sneaker that, you know, it was a high-top sneaker that you can unzip and make it a low-top sneaker, and I just couldn't understand why I didn't win. And, and I think that that is really where, where all of this began for me. Um, so at a very young age, I mean, I, I found quickly the power behind fashion um, and, and identity, and then I think losing that, that sneaker competition created the drive in me to 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 really pursue this this something. Wow! That's the beginning. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Robin. Um, Robin, I wanted to ask you. We hear that you've worked with many amazing people and celebrities. Um, would you share how you got started in working with so many famous people, and what advice would you um, give? Stu- and what advice would you give students? Uh, who would like to follow in your footsteps to do the same? Um, you know, fashion is, um, it, it, if I was to give advice to students, um, I'll take the, the second part of the question first, um, is to really look at the business in a circular view, a 360-degree view, um, because, you know, so many people go to school to be a fashion designer, to be the next big designer, um, but, and I think that the dream as a as a young child is, you know, I want to be a fashion designer. I know a lot of kids that I, I talk to and a lot of parents that I, that I speak to about this. Um, but the one thing I would say is that there are so many supporting roles um, that are very, you know, you're very well paid for these supporting roles um, that actually can, can take someone within the fashion world or the fashion community. Um, and I would encourage kids and parents to, um, you know, look beyond, you know, uh, the tip of the iceberg and look at some of the supporting roles because there's an entire business um, that is a tie to fashion and there is a world that uh, that people can go to school for um, in this community and really um, carve out for them a, a nice slice, uh, a nice income and, and, you know, a nice slice of life. So um, I would encourage anyone that if they love fashion, um, find out, you know, what portion of fashion and, you know, maybe they can't draw, 
you know. Um, I mean, I'm not the best sketch artist, um, but I work with a team of three people that are the best sketch artists. Um, so, you know, you may not have that one ability or you may not be strong in that ability, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow that to discourage you. I mean, if it's, if it's in your heart, that means that it was placed there by God. So I would pursue it. I would definitely pursue it. Um, the second half of it is, is really about um, um, partnerships. And um, I've gotten the ability to, um, to be part of an organization called 5001 Flavors. And um, I was introduced to oh. my partner, Guy, Guy Wood, back in 2006. Um, and I was working on, and this is when I was developing a, uh, a fully recycled plastic bottle fabric. And, um, and I was sick and tired of the bathing suits, you know, with the floral prints on them, um, the Hawaii floral prints. I was really frustrated with that. And, and I sat down and I designed a new bathing suit collection and I designed it alongside this fabric that would not get wet. Um, and I was introduced to Guy, and we sat down, and I showed him my portfolio, and I showed him my concept, and when I showed him the fabric, it was immediate that um, that we that we were going to partner, and it was immediate that we were going to connect. Um, so from there, I was able to um, start working with Guy on the bathing suit collection, but then also being able to um, learn the business of fashion and. Um, there were a lot of design sessions that I was able to get in on um, that most people, um, you know, would only dream of, and, and it was it was through this partnership that I had the ability to work with um, so many great folks out there. Wow! Wow! You know, you know, Robin, did you have another question, Jay, or do you want me to go on? I have some questions, but I want you to go on. I don't want to. Uh... Oh, the wonderful questions we have. I don't want to take advantage of you. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So, you know, Robin, having your business in fashion gave you a view of becoming a humanitarian to change the world, okay? And I would love for you to share with us, you know, how this came about and what had you look at the epidemic of malaria? Yeah, the, um, you know, the 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 philanthropy side of um of things was something that um because I've thought about this this um this over the last year so much you know how did I get to this point how did i how did I become you know this person or or how did we get this far in um and I started to look at some of the things I was doing and in back in o five and o six i was um I actually had a finance company um that I was working for and and I was able to spin off with with a um partner at the time, and my goal was to create a financial company where people could come in, um, get financing, and be able to trust the system, and the system would be set in a way that would not take advantage of people. Um, So this is something that I think was inside or embedded into my character um, long before we we got to the point that we're at now. Um, And... Mm -hmm. Even with the bathing suit collection, one of the things that um, that we, we're working on is that um, the proceeds would go to teaching inner-city kids how to swim, because I believe that swimming was uh, or, or is something that's so important to life, and um, you know, being able to to participate in, in summer activities and not being afraid of water, and and you know, water could be dangerous, so. Um, there was always this drive to help others. Um, worked on another project called One Life, One Soul, 
where um, I would make designer jackets for clients, and then I would make a second jacket, and I would actually give it away to someone that was living um, on the streets as a homeless person. And watching the shift in in them from, you know, uh, feeling unappreciated um, to getting something that was custom-made, something that, you know, was extremely expensive and valuable and seeing that, um, uh, the message that you're just as important um, as the next person. So, so you know, being philanthropic, and I think the the drive to help people has has been there um, and has been embedded in me for for a long time. Um, and at this level, with with malaria, I think it's it's really the pursuit of truth. Um, and over the last year, we've we've um, we found some some interesting data um, that was not or not that it's not public knowledge but it's not it's not the knowledge that is highlighted. So I think the pursuit of finding the truth behind malaria to meeting malaria face to face um versus reading it over the internet or, or articles and I wanted to meet malaria face to face and, and I think the pursuit of truth, um the ultimate goal to find the, the real truth behind malaria, I think our belief is that malaria is preventable, so if we can find that truth, then we can um, carry forward the, the preventative measures that, that we have in place. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and what we were able to find, the truth that we were able to find with with malaria when we spent time in Africa is that it is preventable. The problem, one of the problems is that it's socially acceptable. Um, wow. And, wow. You know, to me, that is that's one of the identifying factors that would have to change. So, one of the things that we're looking at is by using fashion, making malaria almost uncool, um, that it's not acceptable. And it's some simple things that you can do. You know, before you take a shower, before you use the bathroom, you know, um, stopping oh, Robin, for a moment. Robin, to, yeah, Robin, we 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 have to give our guests that. Okay. Hello? Yes. Um that's that's very interesting, Robin. I'm just I'm seeing how you changing you changing the culture of a nation, which is very interesting when you said it was socially acceptable because that's hard for me to believe that they just think that's the norm and that's just a normal thing. Changing the culture of a nation is such an extraordinary thing. What you're doing is getting people to think uh outside the box. I was wondering when did you know this material would, this material that you designed would really make a difference? And I mean, really, Robin, how did you know? Um, you know, it initially um, the reasons why I created the fabric were, were very selfish. You know, I wanted to be one of the only people um, at the party in the summer that you know was not being bitten by mosquitoes. Um, but as I did my research, um, I realized how. Um, how perverse the problem was with malaria and how many people were dying. Um, and I think that, um, you know, although our our test certificates um, said that our product worked um, and we knew that our product worked, I mean, we knew that, we, we knew the science behind it was sufficient um, and there, there were plenty of case studies um, that supported what we believed um, that we created. But I, I think that um, 
the documentation was not good enough um, for me as an individual. Um, and I needed to know firsthand um, if this product actually worked. Um, so we made a decision to um, to actually, uh, uh, you know, I spoke with my family, uh, I spoke with my children, and I, I uh, and, and everyone agreed that, um, and, and I'd, I'd asked them if, if if it was okay with them if I would travel to Africa without taking any of the recommended medications, um, because if what we had was actually going to work, it had to work independent from medication. Um, because in these areas that we were looking to work, in areas that we are working, um, preventative medication is not available. And, um, you know, having a, a life or living a life in these areas um, dependent on medication alone, um, was, we, we knew was not a, a sustainable um, measure to take against malaria. Um, so it was after I came back from Africa and uh, without taking any of the recommended medications. And I did not sustain one single bite. I was not bitten one time. We were in some of the most, um, uh, uh, we, were in, we were in areas that were completely endemic with malaria, swampy areas, water areas, the, the bush. Um, I knew at that moment that we had something that could actually become a major game changer um, in the fight against malaria. Um, and that we would be able to piggyback on the um, success of the sleeping bed nets that, uh, that actually, you know, work very well and provide a level of protection between six to eight hours as long as someone's sleeping under properly. Um, we knew that now we can give mobility to the problem um, and that it actually worked and that it would work outside of medication. Um, and it was when I came back from the first trip in Africa that I knew I, knew I had something that would change the game. Well, that's just that's that's amazing. That's amazing. It, it, um, it really is. And you know, um, you know, Robin. You know, as you know, um, my, you know, a lot of people know, including our audience. My mother passed away last year, and it's been a it's a has had a profound impact on what I plan to do with the world with my partner Jay here and my partner in London and our partner in Australia on what we want to do to change the world and. That's one of the reasons we reached out to you and other people who are making a difference in places like Africa and India and Haiti and other places. And I understand that your brother passed away. And I wanted to know... I'm sorry? I said he did. Yes, and I wanted to know how does this affect what you do as a humanitarian? You know, um, my brother passed away in 1998. And um, I was 19 at the time. And he and I were extremely close. We were only 20 months apart. And um, at the time, we were we were kind of in a, a disagreement, you know, a brotherly quarrel, I would call it. Um, but he passed away, and, and it was sudden, and he was actually helping someone on the side of the road and was um, hit on the side of the road and um, thrown, you know, 20 feet and um, um, was killed instantly. Um, but his death brought on a very dark period. And in my life, um, I think that um, um, the insides of me um, died when my brother died. And when I say the insides, I mean my mind, my my spirit, my desire to um, to move forward. And I became a robot. And it was, you know, and that's when I started to work in finance. 
I figured it was a good place for me to hide. I could make some money, and, you know, no one would really bother me. And, you know, so I would get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I would work till 9 o'clock at night, and I did that seven days a week for, for five years straight. Um, so it had a profound effect on me. But there was a day, and I'll never forget, I was driving to work, and instantly there was a shift inside of me, and the old me... Um, the artist, the fun, the, the that person came back, and it came and it came back in an instant. Um, and I remember looking down and, and wondering what I was wearing because <laughs> that's the very corporate clothing. I was like, "Whoa, what's going on here? Who are you?" Um, but that that um, that time, um, that time, and in, in my brother's death, uh, it, it affected me in, in ways that. Um, led me to some of the darkest darkest places of um of my humanity um and in coming out of that um my desire to help other people um i don't know is is really based on my brother's death but my desire to be who i am is based on what i experienced after my brother's death because i shut everything off that was me i shut off the artist um, I shut off the creativity. Um, I stopped drawing after he died. So um, in celebration of the life that he lived in that dark time, um, I try to focus as much as I can on um, on my art and, and being as creative as possible and really relishing in that um, creativity because it is who I am and I think it's the reason and purpose of, of why I am. Um, so I often reflect on, on his death in that time, and it's one of those things that um, I cherish because it allows me to really realize that, you know, who I am has a purpose and a reason, and shutting it all off or shutting it down, um, there's no benefit to that. So Thank you. it's been a while since Thank someone asked me that question. <laughs> I wouldn't prepare for that one. You said this was going to be fun, Gail. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you know what it is? Um, I think that people need to understand that uh, people like yourself and myself interact. You know, and Jay, Jay's, you know, an award-winning producer. You're a, a well-known designer. You know, I'm a well-known consultant. And we interact with a lot of people, but there's a human side to us. We bleed, we cut, we, we go through things just like anyone else. And we have things that affect us. And I think it's very important people to, for people to know, Robin, that you didn't become a humanitarian and an entrepreneur overnight. You know, that you... Yeah. You're human and that you went through things that, you know, um, that anybody can go through and that they can still have their dream no matter what they go through and that you will sometimes cut yourself off when mm-hmm. things happen. It's very important that people know that, you know, people who become successful, you know, they too are human beings. You know, and, it, and, it's, and for us, this show, Robin, is about connecting people to learn more about themselves as well as what they can do in the world and achieving their dreams and all of those things. But it's to let them know that they can also, and it's also to leave you as a guest empowered, you know, that knowing that we appreciate what you do and that you have a life and that you have lived a life as well, you know. And I think with that said, Jay has another question for you before I go on there. (laughs) I I, I sure do, Robin. Um, I wanted to know what was your, your trip? like to Africa, what bright energy did you bring back and what smiles did you bring back after that trip? 
Well, we have tons of, um, of video footage and, and pictures um, from that, uh, which I think captured the, the lifestyle of um, some of the folks that um, that we were able to meet and connect with. Um, but, you know, one of the things in, in the first trip that I distinctly remember, um, it was we landed in, uh, in Uganda, and I remember... Um, I can distinctly remember the smell of, uh, it reminded me of, of when I was a kid and, and I would go camping because there was a lot of, um, um, almost a smell of, of burning wood um, in the air. And um, I remember that night particularly was, um, I uh, was wearing mosquito armor for the first time and, and I was wearing it in an environment where um, I could be um bitten and I knew that I was taking a risk and putting my life on the line for this. So I can kind of remember that feeling. Um, and and from that base camp, we traveled um, north to Gulu. And um, we uh, we stayed in a small village uh, called the Dock. And one of the things that I remember, the first night that we stayed there, um, it got extremely dark um, when the sun went down, I mean, when I say dark, it was so dark that you could not even see your hand in front of your face. I mean, you could put your hand on your nose and you could not see your fingers moving. Um, it was that dark. Um, it got dark around 6.30, um, 7 o'clock. And when the sun went down, this darkness. Um, now, of course, we had flashlights and things like that. Um, but there were times where, you know, you, you would sit there and you'd have, you're talking and you had the flashlights off this darkness that set in, there was a sense of fear that also set in alongside it, um, of, wow. of helplessness that set in alongside it. But one of the most beautiful things happened, um, and I don't think I could have, I've never experienced this anywhere in the world, um, and, you know, we're in this remote village, there's no power, um, you know, so the only lights that you have are, you know, flashlights are fire, and we didn't have a fire the first night, and we only had our flashlights. Um, the most interesting thing happened, and um, at around 9, 9.30, um, or maybe it was a little bit early, earlier than that, maybe 8.45, the moon rose, and the moon rose as if the sun was rising, and it brought about this immense amount of light into the village, um, so much light that um, you felt like, well, we weren't using flash, there was so much light, but you can see, you can move, you can talk, and it was, it was, it was so powerful, this amount of light that the moon brought in, and the overwhelming sense that, um, that God did not or would not leave us in complete darkness set in, um, and I think that that was one of the most um, powerful experiences that I experienced in, in Africa, um, was that um, we're not in this darkness alone, we're not in this world alone. Um, and even though there are moments where, you know, and it was about two hours that it felt, um, you know, this complete darkness, you couldn't even move around without a flashlight. Um, when that moon came up, and, and as if the sun would, it brought about um, this sense of relief and this connection to the world, this connection to, um, um, to everything. And I think that that was probably one of the most beautiful experiences, and it kind of set the tone um, from that point of how well we were able to connect with individuals in Africa 
um, because because of that experience, there was a deeper sense of connectivity to everything, um, not just people, but to um, to the world, to the environment, and that um, we're not alone. Wow. Now, um, Robin, we're coming close to running out of time. We just have a few more questions for you. And, you know, um, I'd like to know, what was your trip like to Haiti, and what made you go there? Haiti was um, Haiti was a quick, uh, it came up very quickly. Um, a good friend of mine who runs an organization called the FAR Organization um, was building a, um, a church down there, and um, he, he asked me, Robin, please, you know, Come, come with me to Haiti. It will be a couple of days, and we really want you to see Haiti and experience it. We traveled to the northern part of Haiti, uh, a place called Capation, and um, Haiti was amazing in the sense that everything was moving. There were no still parts to Haiti, <laughs> um, and it seemed like everybody was working and almost recycling everything. Um, so nothing felt that it was going to waste. Um, but I realized something in Haiti that, um, and, and it's funny that you asked me about Haiti because I was thinking about it today, um, there was no real recycling programs in Haiti. So there's an immense amount of plastic and waste in Haiti. Um, and one of the things that I would like to do is be able to go back to Haiti um, and start a recycling program where plastic can be collected. Um, and just like we have the recycling programs here where five cents um, can be given for each plastic bottle. Um, and I learned as I, as I was there, I learned some research that, you know, plastic is a commodity um, that when it's broken down and recycled and, and returned back to, you know, these little pellets, um, it's worth money. And um, uh, oh, wow. I, I found someone. I found someone that was actually working in Haiti and actually had contracts to sell that plastic to China um, so that it can then be made into computers. So one of the things that I learned in Haiti is that, I mean, it was, there was, there was plastic everywhere. I mean, on the beach, there was plastic in the ocean. There was plastic everywhere. There were plastic bottles everywhere that if um, we could put in place um, a, a recycling program where people were able to collect and get paid the five cents, um, I know that um, um, Haiti would would have no plastic left because everybody, like I said, is moving, is is working, is is hustling. They're doing something to provide for that very day. Um, And through uh, the individual that I met, I know that we would be able to then take uh, pay the five cents out, um, break down the plastic, and be able to um, sell that plastic to China, um, and ultimately, um, you know, turn that over to the Haitian people. So that was why I went to um, um, Haiti, and um, I went to Haiti because I was just invited to go because my um, uh, Finney Matthew believed that if I went there, I would see something um, that you know I would be able to bring some sort of value. Um, and what I saw was I saw money laying around everywhere in the form of plastic. And um, while I was there, I was able to connect with an individual who um, was building a recycling plant there, and his generator was not working. And we just happened to have a generator mechanic on our team who went and actually worked on their generator. And when I showed up at their plastic recycling facility, 
um, the generator was actually purple. And I took that as a sign, and, and it was pretty funny, but because um, I've got this thing with purple, with the code purple thing, and to see a purple generator in the middle of Haiti was um, was pretty interesting. But um, So I've been working with Finney and, and, um, and this individual on, um, on putting together this recycling package, and um, hopefully we'll return to Haiti this year and, and be able to really push that um, and using the power of media and video to be able to promote it. The year that you uh, wrote in on a documentary, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, Robin? The uh, documentary that we've um, been filming is called Five on Monday, and it features five children, five countries who are diagnosed with malaria on Monday um, who may not live to see um, Sunday. And we started with um, Uganda, and we met a, um, a 12-year-old girl by the name of Immaculate. And although our initial intention um, and what we wrote down on paper was to, um, you know, follow the effects of malaria in a child from a Monday to a Sunday, um, in the first opening story um, in first country of the Five on Monday, we quickly, I quickly found myself in the film team in the crosshairs of um, of a decision of what we were going to do. Were we going to intervene or not? Um, and there was a point in this initial portion of the film where uh, I was completely overridden with frustration and anger um, that we were going to actually stop filming because it just seemed so wrong um, when you're mm-hmm. faced with this issue. Um, to to move forward underneath the circumstances and in the pursuit of a story felt so wrong. Um, and our team actually, um, and, and I, we sat down and, and um, you know, I decided that we were going to intervene. Um, we had to. It just, it was our obligation to intervene. Um, so we, we intervened and, and it takes, this initial opening story, it takes us so deep into um, this child's life and struggle with malaria. Um, it's it's really amazing. But we have four more countries to film. And, um, you know, initially we, we thought this would be, a, a, you know, an in-and-out quick process. Um, but in pursuit of the truth and pursuit of, of, of the real texture of what we do, um, we're realizing that um, it's the process is going to take a little bit longer. Um, but it will be worth the wait. Um, it will be worth the wait in, in, in every which way because the story is so compelling and so emotional um, that everyone that watches a, a director's cut that we put together um, is so moved by it um, that, you know, they just they, they want to help and they want to get involved. So um, I, I believe the project's going to take... Um, take, you know, more time and maybe even a couple more years, but um, it is a story that needs to be told, and I believe it's the story of the truth behind malaria. Um, And from everything we've done as far as research, I mean, there's nothing that has the texture, speed, and truth behind what we're we're telling in the story. Um, So it is, it's an exciting project. I mean, we're looking at possibly Nigeria, we're looking at Haiti, um, we're looking at Thailand as um, some of the other countries that we're looking at filming in, in 2013. 
I want to ask you, you know, how does what you learn as an entrepreneur, being a family man and a, a man of God, um, and experiencing life and death plays a part in the difference that you make in the lives of others daily? Mm. How does it, how does all of that make a difference in the lives of others? I think that um, the experience of life and death, facing life and death, my personal experiences with it, um, especially my 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 children and my family, um, and then my relationship with God. I think all of it um, centers and and really brings me to one singular point, which is um, you know the first duty, which I believe is to um, you know, love your God um, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then the very next and most important thing in the world is to love others as you love yourself. So loving your neighbor, I think, is the most important thing. And realizing that, you know, my life um, or death or anyone's life and death, that we're only here for a very brief moment. It's just a flicker. It's just a, it's just, I mean, it's a speck of dust in the grand scheme of time and things that the only real thing that we get to leave is a legacy. And the only way that you can really leave that legacy is by leaving it in someone else's life. And the only way to truly leave that legacy in someone else's life is by being a real neighbor to them, um, by, by helping them when they're in need, um, by giving when it's hard to give, um, by loving them when maybe it's, not the cool thing to do or the, or the you know, you may have every reason to hold the grudge um, and forgiving them. I think that it's the pursuit of love ultimately um, that is driving this whole thing to make a difference in other people's lives. Um, and I think that the this really all comes from the relationships that I have with my children, my family, and the relationship I had with my brother, the relationship I had with death. Um, and the relationship openly that I have with with my God, um, I think that those those are the things and the undertone and heartbeat behind it is love um, and expressing that to um, the world because I believe that we are all connected and we are all each other's neighbors. Um, so making a difference in someone else's life um, is really the I think the ultimate pursuit of um, love. Big up. Wow. What an answer. That's <laughs> wonderful. Um, um, what was research and development like for your product? I mean, tell us a little about the research and development. Research and development, um, you know, we use a um we use a chemical which is um uh, very, very common. Um in fact, I can probably go into any household in the United States and, and find um, the residue of this chemical inside of that home. Um, and sometimes this chemical, you can even find it on the fruits and the vegetables that are in the refrigerator. Um, so the research and development um, came in by identifying um, a chemical that was safe and that had enough data, supporting data behind it, um, and that's where we started, and we identified a few different chemicals that fell into this category, but there was one in particular um, that um, had, had had actually hit on every single area that we were looking for as identifying factors. Um, and then the, the question was, were we going to be able to take this chemical and, and um, have it bond to um, a fabric? 
And, you know, my experience and my partnerships, um, you know, we're, we're partnered with, um, with a, uh, a mill in uh, Colombia. And this mill has worked with us since 2006 in developing fabrics. Um, and I'm like a little kid when I go into um, any situation. I ask a lot of questions, a lot of redundant questions, and a lot of how come, why not, you know, why is the, sc- why is the sky blue? I don't understand. Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and the understanding from the first fabric of how polymers work um, in creating synthetic fabrics um, and the bonding uh, agents that take place for that process to happen allowed us to be able to quickly come to a solution to use this chemical and get it to bond and adhere to um, uh, to our 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 fabric, um, and then being able to take that um, process and being able to weave it into something um, that was lightweight, breathable, um, and perfect for um, hot weather environments. Um, so. Um, and then from that point, we left it up to the professionals after we created the fabric um, and developed it. We left it up to the professionals to test it. Um, so we, we looked at a third party to test for the chemical and test for um, the durability of the chemical within the fabric. Um, and they came back, and the results were were, um, were really exciting because we found that um, even after 50 washes, um, uh, our fabric... Um, on a, a per square inch was still 600 parts repellent, um, which was over the amount um, that was necessary. So we could have continued our testing, and we believe that our, our fiber probably would have lasted um, with the degradation of the chemical probably 75, maybe 80 washes. Um, and again, initially, um, we didn't start this process with the intention of creating you know, fabric that would fight, you know, disease and malaria. I mean, it, it really, I mean, that was not the beginning of this. It was very selfish reasons in the beginning. Um, but, again, committing to excellence, um, following through, and um, and getting down to the base or the beginning, um, which is ultimately the truth, um, which is the place where we design from, I think that um, all of those things came into play, which then took us into um, this place that we're at now where, we were looking to um, to scale this up so that we could fight malaria um, head on. Um, so the the research and development uh, really came through um, um, the partnerships that we have, and the um, and their willingness to work with with uh, me and, and go through the creative process and the thousand and one questions that I ask. Um, and every time that they said, you know, I don't think that's possible. Um, or no, that's not possible, I would then follow up with how come, why not, have you ever done it, Um, how do you know it's not possible? Um, And I think like that Thomas Edison desire of, you know, finding the filamer that will light the light bulb, you know, um, and I think his response is classic. It's when he was asked, you know, how did it feel to fail, you know, 9,000 times. So I didn't fail 9,000 times. I I learned what, what not, you know, what did not work. Um, so I think that it's that pursuit of of making it happen um, and then challenging those that said it's not possible um, when they said that um, has led us to this point. 
You don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to yeah. wanna, wanna develop a fiber with me. Believe me. <laughs> I'm pain. We, we actually have two. We actually have two new fabrics um, that we're. Um, um, and I just got the first sample into um, yesterday, and um, it is a lightweight windbreaker material that we're looking to use for um, uh, for nautical application for divers and people that are, you know, in the Cayman Islands or people that are, in, you know, at sea, um, fishermen, fishing communities um, in, in remote villages. It's a, a windbreaker um, style material that is also um, has some skin warmer technology in it. And the second fabric, which we should be finalizing in the next couple of weeks, will be our first camouflage fabric, um, which we're looking to provide to um, militaries um, around the world that are um, trying to keep communities safe, um, but are dealing with the risk of malaria. Wow, that's uh, that's that's wonderful. Um, so, Robin, could you let people know um, where they can make a donation or or buy the hoodies or even the new windbreakers uh, from you? Well, the windbreakers are, are we're I haven't even I mean I just touched the fabric uh, for the first time yesterday and and. Um, that we're we're a ways off on on that one, but if you wanted to um, to purchase the uh, the mosquito armor, you can go to um, ingactivewear.com, dot com, um, or you can go to codepurpleevent.com, and the product is carried there. Um, and it's a pretty simple process. You, know, you just go on, click your size, and and uh, it gets shipped over to you. That's wonderful. Um, I have one last question, and uh, regarding um, uh, WNV West Nile virus, what uh, 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 um, you doing? Your organization is doing to combat this virus over here in the states. You know, um, it's really interesting because we were in um, we were in the fishing we were filming in the fishing village of Lambeau when a news article was sent to me that there was a major um, West Nile outbreak, um, and I think it was 48 or 47 states where um, the West Nile virus had taken hold, and I believe Texas declared declared a state of emergency. Um, And I think when we heard that, um, we were so, and I know this is going to sound horrible in one way, but it was never meant um, in that way. We were excited um, not that West Nile is, is, you know, in America or that people were dying from it, but excited that the problem was um, something that people could identify with at home um, because we believe that if you can identify with someone else's problem, then you're more willing to help them. Um, so for us, we, we, we really believe that, you know, that was a blessing um, in disguise and, um, we're hoping that, you know, this summer we're doing um, further testing, research and development. We're doing um, human testing. We're doing um, uh, carcinogenic reports um, on our fabric and disposal reports because we're planning on selling to um, um, uh, to, to governments. And in order to do that, you know, you, you really, really have to take things to the next level and, and educating people. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.